Well, this morning we come to a text that really the entire series of our uh, of the book of James is named after, as you see behind me, James, a living faith, and the title of this morning's sermon is the same: a living faith. To have the kind of faith that exists not only in word but in deed. The reality is, though, that this passage has been the subject of intense debate. And if you've ever studied this passage at all, if you've ever discussed this passage with other people, you know that there's a lot of debate that really shrouds this passage between specifically Roman Catholics and Protestants. And so for the sake of clarity, and and so you understand well and can defend well our position on the passage, I really need to let you in on the debate a little bit. And so in one corner, you have in the Roman Catholics uh, who believe this passage is, is a prime example for their understanding that our justification, that we have been made right with God, in some level depends on our works. They would look at something like verse 18, where it says, I will show you my faith by my works. Or verse 22, faith was completed by Abraham's works. Or most strikingly, maybe in verse 24, You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And so after being brought to this passage by a Roman Catholic uh, family member or friend and shown these verses, how could it be any different? Again, verse 24 is just so clear that, that faith does not come just by faith alone, but that it actually requires works in order for you to actually be saved. These verses rifled one after one another to make that case that we are not justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That we would argue, right? That we looked at even last fall within our five sola series, that the Protestants during the Reformation several hundred years ago, that was the rally cry, essentially. That among them, as they were teaching, what was bubbling to the surface was that our salvation was not by works. It was not by going to Mass. It was not by uh, giving money to the church. It was not through anything like that, that it was by grace through faith in Christ. And so the difference then is faith plus works against faith, faith plus works. Now, hopefully we'll be able to, within this sermon, explain that a little more clearly. But again, going back to that Protestant Reformation... Martin Luther was used by God to really recover and regain the pure doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And at one point, in, earlier on in Luther's career, in regard to the book of James, specifically thinking of probably this passage, he called the book of James an epistle of straw. That it was a set, not worthless, that had an element of value But it was an epistle of straw, and he considered it, again, much in part because of the end of chapter 2 here. You see, Luther was coming out of Catholicism. The blinders had finally fallen off of his eyes, and God had, had really regenerated his heart and opened his eyes to see that salvation does not come through keeping the Mass and the sacraments and so forth. It actually does come by grace through faith, by reading books like Romans and Galatians, and seeing what Paul had to say in regard to justification, that it is all of the work of God and not our own works, that it was not by the works of righteousness, but upon the basis of Jesus' works, that we have been right with God. And so you can imagine, as those blinders had fallen off of his eyes, he comes to the book of James, and it doesn't seem to jive 
with all that he's read in Galatians and Romans. It looks like, at least from the outset, that our justification does come by our own works. But if I can humbly say this about Luther, at least at that point of his life, he had trouble synthesizing James and Paul and had a misunderstanding by calling James an epistle of straw. But what is clear, even within the Old Testament passages that James and Paul each cite when they're talking about justification, is really that they do not disagree at all. Often, the Apostle Paul emphasizes in his writings that Abraham, this great man of faith that he brings up often, was counted to him as righteousness. His faith was counted to him as righteousness. God made promises, if you remember, back in Genesis chapter 15 and elsewhere, which is often what Paul is pointing back toward, that initial moment when God gave Abraham faith, the beginning of faith in the life of this new believer. But James is talking about not that initial point, of, of conversion, not, not at that initial point when faith was expressed on the part of Abraham, but what James is talking about is the continual action and the words and the deeds of a believer following the initial faith that God had given him, which is why James in this passage brings up Genesis 22, not Genesis 15. And so Abraham, according to Paul, by looking at Genesis 15, when the promises were given to him, He was justified by faith. But Abraham, according to James, he proved the faith that he had given to him in Genesis 15 by his works in Genesis 22. Genesis 22, when Abraham offers up Isaac on the altar, is not the first moment of faith for Abraham when it was counted to him as righteousness. Instead, it's really a mountain peak of a moment in his life that has displayed for millennia That Abraham had a faith that actually impacted the way he lived. It was a living faith. It was a faith in action. As one commentator has said, Paul is dealing with obstetrics, with how new life begins. James, however, is dealing with pediatrics and geriatrics, with how Christian life grows and matures and ages. And so there are at least a couple of sides to it, aren't there? That you have the obstetrics that Paul is often dealing with, and then the pediatrics, pediatrics and the geriatrics that James is dealing with. And so James is saying that if you have been truly born of God, if you have truly been born again, then growing has to happen, right? Just like in the, in the physical realm, if one of your children is born, they have to grow. If they're not growing, it's a serious issue. So in the spiritual side, if you have truly been born again, there has to be an element of growth. If there is no element of growth, then that really means that there is no life to begin with. But James is saying, if you have been truly born of God, this is going to happen. In fact, we, we know this already from the book of James, that James does not think that it's your works that get you saved. We've already seen this within James chapter 1, verse 18, a few weeks ago, where he says, of his own will, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Or James 1.21, accept the word implanted in you, which can save the soul. It's, it's the word, it's the gospel that saves our soul. It's not your works that save your soul. Or just last week, in James 2.5, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? And so we know that James believes that the new birth is all of God, not of works, that it's the work of God. But what James now emphasizes in chapter 2 
is that if the work of God has actually happened in your life, it will be displayed by faith and action. And in order to help us understand this passage, I'm borrowing uh, Sinclair Ferguson's very helpful but sinful, or not sinful, uh, very simple but helpful analysis. Uh, James first asks the question. He gives an explanation. He gives two illustrations. And then he gives a conclusion. And you can follow along in the back of your bulletin if you'd like. That's there for you. But first... James's question. Look at verse 14 again. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So this is his question. It's clear in the first four words of verse 14 and the last four words of verse 16. What good is it? Or what good is that? So this is James's question. What good is it for you to say, notice that, that this person says they have faith, they don't actually have faith, but this person says they have faith and they don't have any works to back it up. And then he brings up this very simple illustration, doesn't he? And he loves illustrations. He uses them all the time. But what if there was a poor brother or a poor sister with poor clothing and lacking food and you look at them and you just say, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled. And you don't give them what they need? How is that genuine faith? Like, What good is that? What good is a so-called person of faith who refuses to be giving to another person of faith. Do you remember back in the book of Acts, back in Acts chapter 2, when the church is really beginning to take shape and people are getting saved all over the place, they're being added to the church? But what does the author Luke make note of in regard to how the people of God are treating one another? He says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So all the believers, all of these people who had faith, they had all things in common, and what they begin to do is they start selling their stuff, and they start giving it to one another. So there's an indication that this is what people of faith do. They'll see their brother, they'll see their sister in need, and they'll fill that need, won't they? But this implies at least a couple of things. It implies that you know one another well enough to know what the needs are, doesn't it? That each of you probably have some element of physical need within your life that others can help fill. And this implies that we have deep enough relationships with one another to know what the needs are and we have to be loving enough to do it. To learn what is going on in one another's lives so that we can fill the need. Do you know each other well enough to do that? If you haven't been around long enough, come and ask the elders or deacons in the church how you can fill a need. Ask how you can put your feet to faith, to put your faith in action, to demonstrate within the context of the church family that you don't just claim to have faith, but that you actually do have faith and you prove it by works. James says in his illustration that the person who can help the poor person doesn't help. Instead, the person says, peace to you, goodbye, be warmed and filled, and they do absolutely nothing to warm and fill them. 
So what good is that, James says? And do you know what we say, just to kind of translate a couple thousand years after, what you and I say, instead of saying, peace to you, be warmed and filled, what do we say? I'll pray for you. Like you hear of a need, I'll pray for you. And you do nothing to actually fill that need. That you could, you could step in, but you don't. You give a pious, well, I'll pray for you. And I think what James would ask us is, what good is that? Right? Understand that. Of course, we want to pray for one another. But understand, James wants you to put feet to it. Let me give you a very real and fresh application. And I, I really honestly didn't really expect Dan to be here this morning. Um, but we just had Mandy get in that very serious car accident. And she's going to be out of work for the next three or four months. And, and praise the Lord, the, the next several weeks of meals, many of them have all been filled. And if you haven't been able to sign up, please see Kelly. Um, and if you don't have the internet and you didn't know we set up a meal train, see Kelly. But how can we help them? How can we give to them? I mean, you may not be able to financially be able to, to, to give them money or to even uh, help them with food. But I didn't run this by Dan. But will you be willing to go over and clean their bathroom? Or even what he said when he was giving the testimony. He's like wondering where the line is because he has work to do around his house. There's no line with the people of God. There should be no line whatsoever. There should be no task around their place that Dan does around the home and that Mandy does around the home that we cannot step in and fill, right? I mean, when a church made up of real Christians, sees another Christian in need, they're to be like white blood cells in the body rushing to the wound, aren't they? Otherwise, James's question to us is if we are not demonstrating our faith with action, what good is it? Let's just stop the game, right? But James goes on to explain a bit more following his question. Look at verse 17. He explains it. So also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So interestingly enough, James brings up this hypothetical person who comes along within what he's talking about and he says, well, you have faith and I have works, kind of pitting the two sides against each other. The person who has faith and the other person who has works. But the point is that you can't have one or the other and be what God wants you to be. I mean, you don't hear this kind of thing from me very often because we do place a very high premium on doctrine at Windsor Christian Fellowship. We don't apologize for that. We think that we should absolutely have a premium on God's Word and what it has to say. But having a so-called faith and having a robust theology that has been sharpened and fashioned and you have spent years amassing knowledge, simply put, it's not enough. The great Welsh preacher and pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, I spend half my time telling Christians to study doctrine and the other half telling them that doctrine is not enough. It's not enough. Study doctrine. Read your Bible all the time. Read heavy, thick books about the Bible. But it's not enough. A head full of doctrine without the regular practice of getting on your knees with a basin and a towel to clean the feet of your brothers and sisters, as it were. It's such a waste. 
Faith without works is dead. Works without faith is dead. You cannot forget the words of Jesus. Kind of on the other side of James's discussion here. That certainly faith without works is dead. But the works without faith is also dead. And I think that's what Jesus gets at in Matthew chapter 7. When he very soberingly says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Right? And then he goes on to list a bunch of things. He says, on, many, on that day, many are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I, Jesus, will declare to them, what? I never knew you. Like, I've never cast out a demon before. Have you? But there are going to be people who stand before Jesus and say, I casted out demons in your name, and he's going to say, I have no idea who you are. That's because works without faith is dead. And so for those who would say, I have works and you have faith, the person who only has works will end up in the same place as those who claim to have faith. They will depart from before the Lord for eternity. A biblical Christian is a person who has both faith and works. And so faith and action are not to be pitted against one another. They're married. Bringing up then, as James does, the example of the demons. Did you notice that? In verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. So this this goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, the famous Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, right? And so this was uh, the, the cornerstone, bedrock confession of Israel. And even for ourselves, this is huge. We believe that God is one. Okay, that's fine, because the demons even believe that. But their response is terrified. So you think you're doing pretty well? You have orthodox theology? You believe all of the right thing? That's great, because guess who else does too? The demons Satan himself does. I mean, who could have a better theology than the demons who were created by God and they were in his presence until they follow Satan's rebellion, right? I mean, just because they rebelled didn't mean they didn't know the truth. They do know the truth. Satan and his forces may lie about the truth, but they know exactly what it is. And for somebody to say, I have the right confession. I say the right thing. I believe that God is one yet they have no works. They're no better off than an eternally hell-bound demon. The reality is, though, that for the one who does not have a faith that is in action, their doom is that very same. This thought has to stop us dead in our tracks. That you can have a proper theology, a proper confession, and not have genuine faith. That all of your theological I's are dotted, T's are crossed, and you could be on your way to hell. I may have told you this illustration before, but when I was in college, the chancellor of our college was preaching, and he gave an illustration about a man that he knew who was cheating on his wife. And I can't remember if this man was a pastor or if he was a professor, but he was something, and apparently he was quite brilliant. But that man would recount to our chancellor how on the way to cheating on his wife, he would literally, from memory, recite Bible verses in Greek. 
which is the language that the New Testament was originally written in, on his way to be an adulterer, quoting the Bible in Greek. And the point our chancellor would make is that the man didn't do what Peter prescribes in his second epistle in chapter 1, verse 5, where it says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge. You see, there's a proper order that God gives you faith and then what is to be added to your faith first? Is it knowledge or virtue? So so this man is on his way to cheat on his wife, reciting Bible verses in Greek. Great, you can recite Bible verses in Greek. But it means nothing, that knowledge means nothing if you don't have virtue. Making virtuous and godly and holy choices. See, virtue without knowledge is dangerous. To just have knowledge with no virtue. Brothers and sisters, it really kind of comes back to that age-old question that we've asked here before. But is there enough evidence as we look at your virtuous works throughout the week to convict you of being a Christian? That if a lawyer had to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt to a jury that you're a true believer, is there enough evidence? Are your fingerprints everywhere? Could a jury of your friends and family come together with a clear resounding guilty in regard to if you're a Christian or not by looking at your life? One of the practices that we cannot dismiss that Paul commands of us in 2 Corinthians is he says, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. This is something that we should do and do often. Oftentimes, we're willing to present the argument for why we are a Christian, but we do not often ponder the case that stands against us, whether it's true or not. Paul tells us to examine ourselves. Are we in the faith? Test ourselves. And how are we going to know whether or not that we have passed the test? As Jesus says, by their fruits, you will know them. Brothers and sisters, test your faith. I can never, you can never get beyond the point of, se- of being like, yeah, I'm good. Like, I'm fine. I, I know. I'm, I'm good. We need to have these periods of testing, of examining ourselves to be sure that we're in the faith. Reach out to a, a fellow member in the congregation that you love and trust and ask them if your faith is seen within the church family. Ask your spouse or ask your children to, to, tell, to, to be honest with you. If you are genuinely in the faith, if your works display that, examine whether you are in the faith or not. But notice next what James does. It's interesting because he presents these illustrations of people who have real and genuine faith that was proved by their works. Look at verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? We're not going to take the time to turn there, but again, you remember that story back in Genesis 22 with Abraham and Isaac. 
God has made all of these beautiful promises to Abraham. He would be the father of uh, the nation of Israel. He would be also the father of many nations. His children would be like like the sand on the seashore, like the stars of heaven. But Paul makes all of this incredibly clear in Galatians. And then he's the father of all of those who have faith in Christ. But Abraham would be given land, Canaan, which ultimately would typify the entire earth, where Paul says in Romans 4 that Paul is going to be, or that, that Abraham is the heir of the entire world. But after all of these promises that were to come to Isaac, through Isaac, God tells Abraham to get up and to kill his son, Isaac. And now we know from the book of Hebrews, in the Hall of Faith, we call it, that Abraham believed that God would actually, if he went through and killed his son Isaac, he believed that God would actually raise Isaac from the dead. And Romans tells us that Abraham had full confidence in the promises of God. But here's the point. When you consider this towering figure of faith in the Bible, and you consider his life, is there an event within his life that you can point to to say, Abraham had faith, And there it is. And you can, can't you? Abraham had faith. And you point to Genesis 22, where he was to sacrifice his son. And you say, that's where he had faith. He he demonstrated it. But then he had Rahab, right? Rahab, the prostitute, who happens to be in the direct family tree of Jesus, also spoken about in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11 as well, and that Rahab was from Jericho, the city, right, where the walls were going to come tumbling down, and she had hid the spies that went out to check Jericho. And the book of Hebrews says about her, by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So she had heard about the God of Israel and all that he had done and she had faith in him and she demonstrated this faith by hiding the spies, by protecting the spies of Yahweh. And so James has asked his question all the way back in the beginning of our passage, what good is faith apart from works? He's given us his explanation. Faith and works, they're married, they go together. You can't have one or the other and figure everything is going to pan out well for you. He's given illustrations of people of faith who acted according to their faith. They had faith and they had works. And then he gives this conclusion in verse 26. Just briefly, verse 26. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. What is the separation of your spirit from your body? That's death. When your spirit departs from your body, you're dead. And this is the same in regard to your faith. This is James's very simple conclusion. If gospel action is not evident in your life, you have a dead faith. In order to kind of circle back around to our introduction and thinking about Paul and James... They are not disagreed on this subject. In fact, Paul emphasizes the need for works in the life of a Christian. In Ephesians 2 and verse 10, he says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So these are actually works, according to Paul, that God has prepared before time. All of you have works that God has already preordained for you to walk in, according to Paul here, to walk in good works, 
Titus chapter 3 and verse 8 says, The saying is trustworthy. Again, this is Paul's writing. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And he says, these things are excellent and profitable for people. He says, Titus, I want you to insist that the people who have believed in God also have good works. They also have faith and action. And over the last several texts in the book of James, he has steadily been building upon this idea. Pure religion, to put your faith in action, is to take care of widows and orphans. Pure religion, to put your faith in action, is to not show favoritism to people within the context of the church. Pure religion, faith in action, is to clothe and to feed a needy person. Friends, what does faith in action look like in your life? The gospel of Jesus, once it is believed, is not something that is simply for the mind, although that has to be included. But the gospel of Jesus, once believed, informs the mind, inflames the heart, and moves the hands. Can it be possible for a person who has been brought from the dead, spiritually speaking, been made alive by God, to work next to a spiritually dead person year after year, and for the dead not to think that anything about you is different? What good is it if your neighbor knows that you're a quote-unquote person of faith Yet they personally never feel the impact of that. What good is it if your children know that you have faith and you bring them up in the faith, yet you you never demonstrate the other six days of the week the actions of a Christian? The reality is, and I think James means this to be right in our face, and we should feel the weight of this, that if there are no works to back up your profession of faith, then all you have is a profession. You don't have genuine faith. So the question for us is, do we have a living faith? If you do, rejoice and continue on. If you do not, ask God to enable you to walk in the works that He has prepared for you. Let's pray. Father, again, we're...